Welcome to this episode of the Sports Info Solutions Baseball Podcast. There's lots going on with the offseason in full swing. We have two guests today, and let's get right to it. We're joined by Josh Roich. He is the Diamondback Senior Vice President of Content and Communication. I felt like we needed to cover the Marlins' historic hiring of Kim Ng as the first female general manager of a team in any of the four pro sports. We did a show on women in baseball analytics with Emily Curtis and Kiri Oler. We'll do another show on women in baseball before the 2021 season starts. But for now, I wanted to get someone on the show who could speak to who Kim is, and Josh can do that. In fact, Kim gave him a shout-out at her hiring press conference. Has there been any reactions uh two or three that meant something to you, maybe either people you knew or didn't know? Yep, uh, one was uh, Billie Jean King, for obvious reasons. Uh, Michelle Obama, of course, was a big one, humongous one. Uh, one was a tweet from Josh Rowich, who I used to work with in the Dodgers organization. And his was meaningful because, um, you know, it, it just, showed me how much people have been hoping for this moment for me and for the sport for such a long time. Uh, and you know, the, the gratitude that he had and you know, just the sharing of the moment. So it was, uh, it was great. Friday was great. Um, Josh, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Uh, that must have been cool to have gotten the, the shout out from Kim uh, when she was announced as the GM. Yeah, it definitely floored me. I mean, I'm, I'm so happy for her. There's nobody more deserving. And uh, certainly when she mentioned my name in the same sentences, I think Billie Jean King and Michelle Obama, it, I legitimately was crying at my desk. It was pretty cool. All right. So tell us about your relationship uh, with her dating back to your time with the Dodgers. Well, she came in as an assistant GM under Dan Evans, as, as most people know by now, and, and, uh, and just very quickly uh, became a very good friend of mine mainly just because she's such a great person I mean, she's obviously an incredible talent and, and understands the game on, on the level that a general manager needs to understand it. But she was just such a great person and we had a lot of things in common. And so um, fortunately we got the chance to work together from the time she joined the Dodgers all the way through. Um, we both left right around the same time at the end of 2011. She's just such a special person. People truly love being around her and uh, there's nobody more deserving than her. All right. So talk about some of the traits that uh, she has that you think will make her a good GM? Well, first of all, she's brilliant. And most people probably don't realize when she's in the room that she's often the smartest person in the room because she doesn't carry herself like that. But she's just such a intelligent person with a great way of looking at things. And so first and foremost, I think a good general manager knows that. I think a good general manager these days has the right blend of analytics and kind of the old school scouting approach. And she's always had both of those. She was analytically minded and inclined before that was a common thing. Uh, she worked under Paul DePodesta. She, she worked under a number of different people that um, I think helped her understand those things, even dating back to her early White Sox days. Um, and she's just so cool and calm at all times. She's very hard to ruffle. Um, and so, you know, at being unemotional sometimes and not being attached to your players and, but still being able to connect with them. I think she just has a way of connecting with most people she comes in contact with that they will run through a wall for her or they just, they respect her. And that's, those are all things I think a good general manager needs. Did you keep in touch with her uh, when she was at the commissioner's office and that experience and, and what were, what were your dealings with her and your experience with her like there? Yeah, we, I mean, we've stayed in touch for the last nine years. Like I said, we, I, we both left the Dodgers within a, a handful of months of each other. And um, and she she worked tirelessly, uh, mostly on international, but also just on the development of baseball. And so 
whether it was World Baseball Classics where we'd run into each other or every spring training, if we were in the same city, we'd always try to get dinner because we used to be spring training roommates for myself and, and Chris Adock, uh, who also works at the league office. Um, so, yeah, we've stayed in touch for years. I think she probably also padded her resume with a lot of the things she did over the last eight or nine years where she she helped grow the game internationally. She helped get in touch. She was in touch with all 30 GMs. And so I think that also is the sort of thing that probably – when you're walking into a new general manager's role, you need to have those relationships existing. Did you talk to her when she was trying to get uh, GM jobs and what she was dealing with with those? Yeah, we would talk almost every time, um, quite often. Just, I mean, certainly not in any sort of advisory role, but we would just talk about it and if she was excited, particularly about this one city or what did she think about that? I mean, there were so many times over the years where we would have conversations about what city would be perfect to hire the first female GM, um, because, you know, there, it's obvious some cities would probably be more accepting than others of some of the challenges that come with it. But she couldn't have landed in a better spot where, you know, most of the time a general manager has to come in and either fire the manager and hire their new person or they don't know the owner very well and they have to have that feeling out period. And when we talked right before she got hired, right before this got announced, we just I said, man, you've got Donnie there who you've known for 20 years and Jeter is your boss you've known for 20 years. And, a team that's succeeding. It's not having to rebuild. It's, it's actually got talent. I mean, you are walking into the perfect job. And she said, I am, she knows it. And I think she's set up to succeed. The long wait, uh, certainly uh, paying off in that regard. I think one thing that hasn't been talked about yet, because I think it's been important to focus on the historic nature of this is what kind of general manager uh, she will be and how she will evaluate players. And I'm curious what your conversations were like with her with regards to the latter uh, and trying to figure out who's a good player and who's a good fit and who's not. Yeah. I mean, you know, one of the stories that I, I think of is honestly, she, she was talking about a lot of things before they were in vogue. And I think some of that is certainly understanding um, the analytics and, and and some of the deeper numbers that help a general manager make a decision. But um, she also, I can remember times, I mean, where we'd just be sitting around a table and she'd be talking about somebody's wipeout slider that jumped out at her. Or, um, you know, one funny story certainly is is um, when my mom came out to visit us in spring training one time, she's not the deepest baseball fan knowledgeably, and probably she would be the first to admit that. But she asked Kim, like, how tell me something that would make me look smart when I go back to the office and tell people that I was hanging out with you. And this was, this was probably, you know, seven, oh eight, oh nine, somewhere in there. And she said, it's all about run differential. People talk about average and ERA and these other stats. But for me, it's really, the game is about scoring the most runs and limiting the opposing team from scoring runs. And that differential is what you need to talk to people about when you get to the office. Are there any players that she was particularly high on before they were good? Certainly she was a part of um, all of the, the conversations. If you think about like tr- tr- making Kenley Jansen from a catcher to a pitcher, those sorts of things. But, you know, ultimately she, she, she probably, as I think about it, probably doesn't want me talking about her individual players. So I'll, uh, I'll refrain from the comments she's made in the past about those guys. Fair enough. Lastly, so watching the press conference, one of my biggest takeaways was that other than when she brought up Billie Jean King, yourself, Michelle Obama, she stayed at the same vocal level and the same emotional level throughout the press conference. You would not have known that this was something that was a historic moment. And I got the impression and just a feeling that that's probably how she is, but I'm judging that off of a slice of a couple of minutes. Uh, You've known her for years. How would you articulate her with regards to that? Well, you definitely saw exactly who she was. She was very authentic and real in that news conference. But I think part of what makes her so 
good is that she doesn't get too up or too down. And I mean, sure, there were definitely times where something would fire her up and you'd get to see a little bit of that side of her um, late nights hanging out and whatever in spring training where she would raise her voice a little bit. But for the most part, she really just does. She, what you saw is who she is. And I think that's probably how she manages to stay so calm in the face of uh, undoubtedly, I'm sure she's, she's faced issues of sexism or racism or whatever else she's ever dealt with in her career. And she just doesn't let it bother her publicly. I mean, sure. I'm, I know it bothers her deep down and she's told me the way it affects her, but ultimately she has a great way of in that moment staying calm, staying poised. And that was ultimately after the news conference, when I texted her, I just said, you were poised as always. Then it doesn't surprise me at all. She really is just a superstar. Yes, certainly. Uh, Our congratulations to her. Thank you for joining us, Josh. uh, And thanks for sharing some stories about Kim Ng. My pleasure. Thanks, Mark. The 2021 edition of the Bill James Handbook is available for order from actasports.com. This year's book features lots of great insights. Bill invented a new stat to measure game score for batters. We look at the impact of the rule changes made in the shortened season and the weird stats that a short year creates. Speaking of stats, we've got lots of them. Career and year-by-year totals for every major leaguer, plus deep dives into defensive runs saved, RBI percentages, shifts, the Hall of Fame, and more. Plus, the first set of hitter and pitcher projections for the 2021 season. That's the Bill James Handbook 2021 edition, available at actosports.com, where you can get 10% off and free shipping. Order today. We're joined by Trevor Plouffe. You may remember Trevor as the third baseman who played nine major league seasons, mostly for the Twins, but also briefly for the A's, Rays, and Phillies. Now he's a co-host of the number one rated baseball podcast from John Boy Media, for a hard time not saying John Boy, talking baseball, and the host of Sequence, an inside the game segment that you can find on YouTube. We borrow him from their group for a little bit to talk MLB free agents. Uh, Trevor, thanks for joining us. I appreciate you having me on. It's uh, finally nice to sit down and, and talk some baseball. You know, I, I guess this is the new face-to-face. Yes. Usually you and I uh, talk via Twitter, and now here we are on, on Zoom. So we'll, yep. eventually we'll, we'll, we'll get to the real-life thing. We will connect in person, though. I'm, I'm sad <laughs> to say that I did not catch up with you when you um, concluded your career in the Lehigh Valley. Uh, I hope that the Lehigh Valley treated you well uh, when you were in the Phillies organization. All right. So you're two years out from retirement. I'm curious now that you're on the other side, how do you think the game differently uh, from when you played it? How do, how do you uh, approach watching it now? You know, I didn't watch a lot of baseball when I played it, you know, so obviously now I take in a lot more of the games as a fan, as a someone that kind of has to stay in the know with things that are going on. So I watch more baseball now, uh, but I still try to think about it and talk about it from the player's perspective because a lot of times when you're playing you feel like that perspective gets lost because a lot of the ex-players that are out there you know the further you get away from the game the easier it seems you kind of forget how hard it is and I've always told myself like please don't ever forget how hard the game is nobody wants to make an error nobody wants to walk the leadoff hitter in an inning you know so it's you kind of have to realize that and I, I just try to Take in a lot of baseball now, but never forget, you know, how hard the game is. And an example of something like this, I was watching uh, your video sequence last night. I was watching the Justin Turner episode and third baseman and how they make plays. Uh, I'll give you a chance to kind of give a free plug for that. What were you looking to do with that? And what kind of things did you find from watching Justin Turner? Sequence was, uh, you know, something I wanted to do for a long time. And essentially, I just wanted to bring the... Um, 
you know, the video room the guys use, you know, to the public, you know, going in, whether you're looking at the picture from the night before or the, or the night of, or you want to look at some defensive plays, it's, you know, a lot of guys will go down there and you just have a little rap session with, you know, another player or a coach. So I thought that would be cool to do that and, and do it publicly. So, you know, sequence has been kind of an evolving thing. I'll have guests. I'll do it on my own. Uh, specifically the one that you're referencing with Justin Turner, we talked about uh, a bounce pass, I called it. And essentially, you know, it's just kind of going a little in-depth on third basemen are supposed to have these cannons for, for an arm. You know, you think of Nolan Arenado, you think of Matt Chapman, um, Manny Machado. You don't always have to do that. And Justin had a couple different plays uh, in Arlington where he ranged to uh, his backhand side and I used to do this and guys that don't have those arms used to do it. He would just one hop the throat of the first baseman. And a lot of people, you know, whether will say, Hey, he doesn't have the arm to get it all the way there. But in all honesty, it's just an easy play to make. And it's something that you need to have in your bag as a third baseman. So I just want to, I just highlighted it. thought it was cool to do that. And just to bring a little bit of an awareness that you're not always trying to, to rocket the ball over there. I mean, it might not be in your best interest to do so. And in watching third baseman this postseason, the other guy that particularly impressed me, and I'm guessing impressed you, was Joey Wendell. I'm just yeah. curious to get the other side, uh, Dodgers raised perspective. What, what were your thoughts on him? You know, he's just a ball player. You know, I got to to meet Joey and and kind of cross paths with him a little bit in my career, but that's exactly how I would describe him. He's, you know, a gritty ball player. We used to, um, when I was in Minnesota with Jamie Carroll, we, t- we tabbed ourselves the gritty utility infielders because we could play everywhere. We worked at all the different positions. I feel like that's kind of how Joey is. He got to settle in at third base, and he was just a picking machine there, you know, coming in on the ball, uh, balls hit hard at him. You know, he just was able to get his glove on anything, and that's kind of the name of the game at third base. Get your glove on it and then get rid of it. So he did a great job. It was, it was really fun to watch him. Yep, Joey Wendell, very impressive uh, during the postseason. All right, so let's talk some free agents, and we'll start with someone who's particularly impressive. We'll start with Trevor Bauer. And the perspective that I feel you can give is similar to what the perspective of the 2019 or 2020 Major League hitter can give. Your career against Bauer, 4 for 22, 8 strikeouts. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that matches about what Major League Baseball did against him that season. What do, you th- what do you think of uh, him in free agency? Now, he wasn't necessarily elite in his younger days. Do you feel like he has staying power as he, as he is? Yeah, I do think he has staying power. And you're right. I did face a little bit of a different Trevor Bauer. You know, I always tell people about him. He was a guy that I, and I could look, I don't know if I've actually, this is factual, but in my mind, I, I remember getting on good hitters counts against him a lot. And then I'd get to 2-0, I'd get to 3-1 or even 2-1, and he would just throw a little wrinkle in it. You know, like if it was a heater, he'd cut it a little bit. Or, you know, if it was his curveball, he'd throw it a little bit slower. And I always just felt like I had soft contact against him. So he was a frustrating at bat for me. I think his pitch arsenal has changed a little bit as he's known to he tinkers as much as he can. Uh, I know his spin rate was up a lot. Um, we, 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 we touched on that on um, in our podcast. You know, there are some things that he said before that maybe – um, are the reason his spin rate was up, but that makes you a completely different pitcher. So, you know, if he's able to sustain those uh, RPM numbers, uh, you saw some silly swings out of hitters against him. And I think that's the mark of someone who is, is doing something different 
you know, he's not – when you go up and you see guys like Jose Abreu, even the AL MVP, he had a really rough swing. I remember that one in my head. It was like a, he swung at a pitch that went 40 feet, you know. And that just tells you, like, Trevor's like – he looks different than other pitchers right now. And I think if you're um, an organization looking for someone, you want someone that can miss bats like that and make guys um, swing at pitches like that because you're able to ex- escape um, trouble. And a lot of times I think that's um, one of the biggest keys for, for starters. If they want to, you know, push that six into the sixth, seventh inning, which doesn't happen so much anymore, you have to be able to strand runners and get strikeouts when you need to. And I think he's, he knows how to miss bats. And I think he's a guy that can continue to do that for a few years for sure. You don't see a lot of pitchers who have sustained success on four and five year free agent contracts. Someone like Scherzer being the exception to that. Yes. Uh, do you think that he can do that? Um, yeah, I think he can. I think he can because he, because he's willing to make adjustments and, uh, you know, the age thing, father time's undefeated. We all know that, but he can Uh, live at a lower velocity. See, that's the thing I was just about to say, like if his velo drops, you know, that, that hurts everybody. So I, I think that he'll command that deal. And then he's talked a lot about doing one year, one year, one year. I think now that he's got that platform year that he's probably never going to be able to replicate. <laughs> I think he's got off that and I think he's actually come out and said that. Uh, so only time will tell. If there is someone that could do it and, and fix, you know, himself and learn how to pitch again at a different velocity, it's Trevor Bauer. So I, right. I, I think that he's a, a good sign for, for, I mean, obviously any team. Let's move to the, the best hitters uh, that are available because there's a pretty big gap between the best pitcher and everybody else. Uh, George Springer this year, 265, 359, 540, consistently a 130-ish OPS plus guy or better, 30, so a little older, can play all three outfield spots. Uh, what impresses you the most about him and where do you see uh, him headed with his career? I, I love George Springer. You know, I don't know why, like, he's the only Astro that I give, like, any, um, like, I don't hate on him so much. I'm not really sure why that is. I know he's an outstanding ball player, and you just read off the numbers there. And he does have, like, the body type, and I think he has, like, the field awareness to continue to play outfield without getting hurt. You don't see him crashing all over the place. I really like him. I've talked to a few people now who have uh, said the Blue Jays are really, really interested in going out and getting him. So I think that he, for me, he's like, if I'm an organization, he's one of the, he's like the guy that I'd be going after. I think he can sustain it for, you know, four or five more years. I think he has the body type. And like I said, I think he just has that awareness where he's, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here. I don't think he's had he's mi- he's missed much time with injuries throughout his career. He consistently plays 120, 140, and he did play 162 once. Okay, so he's he's about average in that. He's not anything crazy, but I I, I just I see him as a guy that is going to be able to sustain that through yeah the early 30s into the mid 30s range. All right, and then uh, you've seen firsthand a catcher who had to move off the position uh, because of wear and tear and injury at the position. The aging curve, not kind to catchers. JT Real Muto, uh, mm-hmm. MLB trade rumor says five years, $125 million. There aren't many catchers who get that. I and mean, Pudge gets that. Does, does JT Real Muto's, I guess, stuff play long-term? Uh, and how do you feel about him? 
I love him. I got to I got to hang with him too in Philly's camp. Um, he's he's a rarity at the position. It's obviously why he's going to command so much money. I think what he has really going for him is a new owner in New York that really wants a catcher. So I think that that'll <laughs> that'll help his uh, free agent uh, dollar amount. So you've directed but, him specifically to to one place. You feel like it's fairly well, obvious. Well, there or or the yeah. Phillies, and you got Bryce yeah. Harper saying you better pay this man. So those are when you got two teams in the NL East, Philly and New York, big market teams. I think he's going to get the money. But for me, it's you know you look at, I look at how hard someone works, how he takes care of his body, hoping that the DH kind of comes into play here for him and for Springer too. You know, as especially for for Real Muto though, if you can get him some DH days. And I know I know that's not going to come in 2021, but possibly 2022 and beyond. I think that will hold a lot of weight. He is a rarity at the position. He can hit. He's athletic. Can he move to first base? Yeah, for sure he can. Uh, but I don't think you'd need to uh, within the near future. How old is he right now? He is going to enter his age 30 season. I, there's no reason for me to think that he'd be out of the catching position in four years. So I think he can continue to do it. He's got, like I said, he takes care of his body. The guy's jacked. Okay, I'll just say it. He's jacked. <laughs> he takes his shirt off. You're like, okay, way to go, JT. Like, you've been working hard. So I like him. He can hit, man. He's got a great swing. And he's an excellent catcher. For a team that, that's going to fork over as much as either the Mets or the Phillies, based on your assessment, are going to fork over, is there any red flag with him or anything that you'd be worried about other than just, hey, it's catcher and, and stuff happens and guys can get hurt? Yeah, that's that's the thing. Is you can get banged up as a catcher. I'm banking, and I think most teams are banking on there being a DH, and the guy can hit. And I think if you gave him a little bit more DH days, I think his numbers might even improve. All right, uh, segueing to DJ LeMahieu, another uh, guy. Uh, New York uh, fans will certainly be interested in him on the other side of uh, New York. Uh, has had two fantastic seasons with the Yankees. There is a thought that some of his success is a product of his home ballpark. In particular, the fact that he goes to all fields and can hit to right field, that that's helping him considerably playing in Yankee Stadium. What are your thoughts on his uh, free agent situation and uh, and what you see for his future? This is one I get in trouble talking about because I didn't, you know, I think of DJ, I think of him in Colorado as a, you know, this big old second baseman and he can hit. And then I started to look up his numbers as he's putting these crazy seasons together in um, New York. And I was surprised to see that, that he was about a league average hitter. And to me, that doesn't make any sense. In my mind, I always put him on a pedestal. Clearly in New York, he's been one of the better players in the game, one of the better hitters in the game. So I made this comparison on our show and people hated it. But I said, you know, before New York, he was, I mean, he was Mike Moustakis. I mean, and people hated that. <laughs> this is DJ LeMay who you're talking about. Come on, how can you do that? So I do think New York helped him, but he's also a guy that, and I think teams look at this, he's a great at bat. Like he, if you put him up in a playoff scenario, a high leverage situation, like DJ is going to give you a good at bat and that is worth a lot. No, I was, I was saying, I was, gonna th- I was thinking of him like you would think of another Yankee, uh, Brett Gardner, a similar kind of guy. Sure. I, I mean, I love that comparison. I think DJ's, he, over the last couple of years, you know, he's had just incredible seasons. He's garnered the MVP votes. I don't think he's going to get paid like that. A lot of people are saying, you know, closer to 100. I think it's going to be closer in the 60 range. I was thinking the Moustakas deal that he got from Cincinnati is very close to what DJ 
probably is going to be looking at. 464 seems maybe a little light, but nothing. you're not going to go a lot more than that. That's okay. my opinion. I don't know how it's going to shake out, but that's kind of how I feel about him. All right. Uh, and segueing to Marcel Ozuna. I think there's a question of how comfortable people are in the field with him. He's probably more Amer- American League appeal than National League appeal, although it's funny. People get so frightened by that one play that happened where he climbed the wall and the ball ended in front of him. <laughs> if you watch him over 162, he's, and the numbers have said this for, shown this for a long time, he's not that bad. Like, he's not, he's not great, but he's not, it's not like he's doing the jump at the wall thing every single game. So, all right, uh, your, your take on Ozuna. He's a hitter, okay? Like, yep. forget about, you're not, paying Marcel to play defense. You're paying the guy to go drive the ball out of the ballpark, you know, be that guy in the middle of your lineup, which he did, you know, all year this year. So I think you can put defense out the window. Again, I think a lot of these National League teams are thinking forwardly and saying, look, we're, we, we're probably going to have a DH in 2022. So Marcel, can we get him in the outfield in 2021? And then 2022, we can start to make him a more of a DH type bat. I think that's kind of the case. If you're a National League team, do you bank on that? I don't know. I think you might. If you're an owner and you're in the front office, you have a pretty good understanding of what's going to come from the CBA, and I think most people want that. So I think that's going to help him, so it'll open up the National League teams for him. But I agree with you. I mean, he's not, he's not some mess out there. I don't want to put my, throw my buddy Delman Young under the bus or anything, but he's, <laughs> no, he's not like a Delman Young out there. Right. You know? So he, he, look, he earned – he took the one-year deal – had a great platform year, and now here he is, and I think he's going to cash in. I don't know exactly. I'm sure there's a lot of suitors for him, but I don't have a prediction for him yet. The All Braves right. should want, well, want him back, in my opinion. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so Springer, Bauer, Realmuto, LeMahieu, Ozuna. The line, uh, you could kind of draw it there because the class weakens considerably. Those five guys, you've said, I love this guy for some reason for all five of them. If you were someone who had deep pockets, one of the then there aren't going to be a lot of teams that have this. One of maybe two or three teams that have deep pockets, and you knew that you could go for one. Who are you going for? I mean, I think it's it's Bauer and Springer are mm-hmm. my top guys, and then it kind of you know what do you need? Everyone needs pitching, but if you're a team that maybe doesn't need a Trevor Bauer, like, and you need some offense, I think you know then you go Springer. I, I both of those guys to me are, are wins in free agency and you, I feel like they're pretty trustworthy and you're not going to go wrong with them. I think Bauer's like an immediate help push you into the playoffs type guy. Springer, like he could be that, but you know, when you have that elite type of pitcher available to you, I think that's kind of the way that I would go. That's the Just, way I see the game at least. Like when I make my predictions preseason, I look at the rotation, like mm-hmm. give me the rotation then go from there. And Bauer can put any team that's kind of around that fringe to above average into the you know elite starting pitcher corps. And that's uh, largely because now you can count the number of pitchers who would go deep into a game consistently on two hands. Yes. Like DeGrom, Scherzer, uh, pitchers of that ilk. A couple other guys I did want to bring up. Um, one who I know you played with in Oakland, uh, Marcus Simeon. He had a... Let's be blunt, dreadful year at bat and in the field this season. It's very rare that I would say that about someone, but if you compare his 2020 to any other season just about for him recently, 
it's off the charts in a negative way. Do you have any sense of what happened to him this year and where his career is headed? You know, I, I don't have any sense like what happened. Like, you know, a lot of people will say like 2020 was a weird year. You know, you got baseball players are creatures of habit and they want to be able to do things uh, the same every day to make sure they're ready for the game. So when the game comes, they just play. I don't know if anything like that happened with Marcus where maybe he got out of his routine a little bit, but he works hard and he's a guy who like, you don't really have to you know, necessarily worry about him not coming in shape or something like that. And I saw him, you know, go from pretty, pretty poor defender, especially throwing wise to, yeah, in 2019, I think he was like really good. He did much better in defensive run save. 2019 was, was a career year for him Mm -hmm. in everything. Yeah. And then, yeah. And then, you know, this last year, like you're saying, not, not so great. So I think that, you know, it's, it's in there. If he would have platformed another great year this year, we talk about him in a completely different light. So it's like, how do you feel about 2020? Do you put a lot of credence into it uh, or do you not? And I think that's what teams are going to have to weigh here. He's a reliable guy though. Another guy, you know, I think when organizations look, you got to look at character too. And he's a high character guy who you can say, if we, want him to work on something, if we see something that where he can improve. But we can get Mark Simon on the phone and say, hey, how do we improve his defense, Mark? He'll do it. <laughs> I saw him working out there with Ron Washington like crazy, and he got a lot better because of it defensively. So he's one of those guys. I, I mean, if you're a team, take a chance on him. Put him in the uh, middle of the diamond. I think you'll be happy. You've mentioned two things in the last couple of minutes, uh, both related to quantifying players that I think people are not necessarily measuring or are still trying to measure. Uh, one is what you just said with Simeon about his, his makeup. Uh, the other is what you said about uh, LeMahieu and the tough at bat aspect and the fact that he can give you the, those are two completely different things that LeMahieu can mm-hmm. give you a, a seven, eight pitch at bat to essentially take out a starting pitcher. Are there any other things that you feel aren't being valued that uh, are important to consider when you're looking at a guy for free agency? I think it depends at what level of free agents we're talking about. If we're talking about top dollar guys, you just want the results, man. Like you just want them to come in. You want them to be a good citizen, obviously. Uh, but when you, when you start to get to the lower tier, I think another thing that people will overlook is, is can this guy make other players better too? You know, if, can I bring a guy in and maybe I have a few young guys on my team? Can he help steer them on the right path so they can become more valuable for our franchise? Who did that for you? Uh, a million people, man. I had such a, a good group of guys. Justin Morneau, Joe Maurer, Josh Willingham, Jamie Carroll. All these guys, very, you know, just hard workers who I wanted to emulate on and off the field. I, talk, I still talk to Josh Willingham a bunch. Like when I saw him, and this is completely different from free agent talk, but like when I saw him as a father, like I was like, I want to be like that guy. Mainly, we're talking baseball here, obviously. I think a guy like Morneau taught me how to work and said, look, you're here, great, but you got to stay here, man, and you got to get better. We had a whole episode in New York where like it was almost the end of my career. Someone else got designated and he brought me aside and said like that could have been you like you know get your ass to work so I had a lot of a good influence and I think that's important for organizations especially if you're a young organization you bring in a guy that can you know help a guy like I said put them help guys get on the right path that's that's invaluable And, and you know I think teams know that but it is hard to quantify it 
Is there someone in this class that we haven't mentioned yet that fits that? I mean, I mean, Bauer, you know, he's, there's been a ton of guys that come on and said, like, this guy's helped me. You know, he's helped me understand my body, what I need to do to do this, do that. I think he's, um, he's someone that could do that. I think, uh, I mean, I'm only speaking from guys that I, I know. Rio right. Muto, hard worker. He leads by example. Like, you're going to see that guy. He's going to be one of the first people to the field. He's going to be in the gym. He's going to be, and that's, it's good to see stuff like that. Uh, Marcus Simeon's going to be out there working early on defense. And if you play defense, you know it, it's all about repetition. Get your butt out there and field a bunch of ground balls. You're going to be better. Marcus will do that. Uh, let's, I wanted to hit on a couple other uh, people. I feel like this is an odd free agent class for number three starters because, uh, quite frankly, there are like a million of them. Jake Odorezzi, Masahiro Tanaka, Charlie Morton, Jose Quintana, James Paxton, Jay Happ, Mike Miner, uh, and then I guess, uh, in a way, Corey Kluber. Who do you like from that group? <laughs> I'm partial to a few different guys. I think um, I think Odorizzi will be a steal for a team. Uh, accepted the qualifying offer last year, then kind of had a rough 2020. He's one of those guys where I wouldn't put any credence into 2020. Um, I think that he can go very cerebral, very smart, a guy that, that could you know unlock something because he is willing to learn and do uh, do what needs to be done. Some of the other guys you mentioned, I'm trying to think. I mean, I, when I think of Kluber, I think of a completely different guy. Like, I remember that Klubot, like, he was very tough. Um, right. I think he was essentially, like, we're, what we're talking about with Bauer. Yeah, he's, so he's, he's, a little, he's a little different, kind of a different pitcher now. Right. Uh, Charlie Morton, to me, is still a guy. I mean, I would take a chance on him every, until he didn't want to pitch anymore. Okay. He's one of those okay. guys I think could help, help the younger pitchers as well. Um, so I think those two, Odorizzi and Morton. Seems, okay, seems who, of, who of the guys that I brought up is a really tough at-bat? You know who I always like thought I could go up there and just rake and then I just never could was Quintana. And I, w- I would love, I was like, every time he'd pitch, I'd be like, all right, sweet, we got a lefty, like he's, he's aggressive, like he's going to challenge you, like let's go. And then uh, I, I don't know my numbers, but they're not good. Well, this is the fun part. I have him in front of me. I have okay, a 405 OVP against him because I think you walked a bunch. Oh, those my. I mean, I feel like I struck out and at a high I, clip, and that's that's unusual for me against a lefty. Okay. Yep. But okay, so he was a tough at bat. Tough at bat. Kluber was always. I had good numbers against Kluber. Three yep. home runs against him. I know that. Um, yep. But never once was I excited to face him. <laughs> he could go out there and just K you three times. You wouldn't even know what happened. Um, I just somehow found a way to get some hits against him. All right, last, uh, last set of guys, closers, uh, Hendricks, Rosenthal, and Hand. Again, I put up my hands because I, don't, I feel like these guys year to year, you never know. Uh, is yeah. there anyone that you're particularly uh, intrigued by? I, I love Hendricks' attitude, and I, I saw him as a starter in Minnesota. So I'm most familiar with him, so I guess that's why I'll talk about him. Uh, I love the, his mentality, and I love that you know in the playoffs when he came back, I'm really – on back-to-back days and just people were like can he maintain his velocity and i think his velocity ticked up that day so i like him hand uh i don't really have much to say about him i don't really remember if i faced him or not and then rosenthal's a cool story i think that um you know he's intriguing but hendrix kind of is i think the guy he sets himself apart he sets himself apart and i think i mean i am almost positive he's going to go to the phillies the Phillies need bullpen help big time. So if I, I'd be, I, I mean, maybe both hand and uh, Hendricks, I think I had both going to Philadelphia. 
because uh, they need some help. All right. And then last question. I was thinking about this last night. You were a first round pick. And sometimes we see first round picks who are great right away. And then we see some guys who take a long time, whether it be because of injuries or just because it, it takes them a while. And I've said this, I think I've said this on the show, uh, don't give up on first round picks. <laughs> uh, and I'm looking at like someone like Kyle Lewis with the injuries that he had eventually cream rose to the crop there. Uh, and he wins the rookie of the year. What does the fan not understand about being a first round pick and the challenges that come with it? I think he, I mean, it's pro balls, the challenge and first rounders have it easier than other guys because they get more opportunities. But the thing is, is you get as a first rounder, you know, I was 17 out of high school, the best player in my area. You know, you play in high school, you're just better than everybody. You get to pro ball and you're just not better than everybody. And it's, it starts all over. And, and like I said, you'll get more opportunities to fail as a first-rounder. But very few times are you just better than everybody. You know, like, you know Alex Rodriguez or, you know, maybe like a Manny Machado. Like, you know, what, like those high-end, high-end guys, they're just better. But when I came in, I was like, man, this is – I got some work to do. So, you know, if you're a first-rounder, they recognize you have some tools. They could – eventually mold you into a successful big leaguer, but it takes time. And, and a lot of it is confidence driven. You show up and you have a few bad years in the minor leagues. You got to find a way to fight past that. And I think that was, for me, that was the biggest thing was <clears throat> I didn't have a lot of success in the minor leagues. Finally, you know, you just, it's just either time you either put up or you go home. And I think that is, uh, that's something that you have to look at. Like when is a guy's last hurrah going to be? And, and can he, turn that into, you know, a wake up call or whatever he needs to do. But I think it's, it's not easy for first rounders. They just get more opportunities. It's hard for everybody. Pro ball is cut throat and it's getting a little less now with the less minor league uh, leagues, yep. but still like you go in and there's just, everybody's good and you have to find another way to separate yourself. I was thinking too that Doug Lanville often advocates this, that especially when you're drafted out of high school, you should spend the full year at every level. And I noticed that you did that for the most part. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think I even maybe got rushed a little too much because I was always one of the youngest players in the league. And, you know, I don't want to say you have to have crazy success at every level, but you should be pretty good at every level before you move up. But then sometimes you see guys, I remember Molitor said, Jorge Polanco, he loved him. He said, I think, you know, he's, he said, I think he's going to be better in the major leagues than he was in the minor leagues. And I said, well, how can you say that? And he said, well, guys are in the zone a lot more. You know, he's not going to chase as many pitches because they're going to be in the zone. Uh, the batter's eyes are better. The lights are better. The balls are better. So I think, you know, there's, there's some instances like that. But, um, but yeah, it's difficult. It is very difficult. I don't think anyone would deny that. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. I want to wrap up the program by talking about the Sabre Analytics Virtual Conference next March. This is a great opportunity to do a research presentation in front of an audience of MLB team employees. We're currently accepting abstracts for potential presentations. We assist Sabre in selecting who presents. Research can be focused on any area of baseball, including player evaluation or business practices. Submissions will be evaluated based on originality, validity, and applicability of the research, along with other relevant factors. I've spoken at this conference. If I can do it, you can do it. I strongly encourage anyone with a good idea to apply. Go to saber.org backslash analytics for more information. 
This wraps up this episode of the Sports Info Solutions Baseball Podcast. For Josh Roich, Trevor Plouffe, and our producer Justin Stein, I'm Mark Simon. Please try to rate and review us if you can. Stay safe and stay well. Thank you for listening. Thank you for tuning in to the SIS Baseball Podcast. If you like the show, please rate and review us on iTunes. If you have any questions, email the show at mark at sportsinfosolutions.com or tweet us at sportsinfo underscore SIS. 